Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Phoenix, Arizona this week. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today on the show, we're taking you behind the scenes of our latest report, Conservation Toolbox. The report is basically a catalog of all the major land protection tools available to help preserve federal public lands. You'll hear more about that in a minute, but first, let's do the news. It's been fairly quiet around here the past few weeks, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did recently put out an interesting report quantifying the economic impact of recreation on public lands. It found that in 2022, people spent an estimated $394 billion on fishing, hunting, wildlife watching, boating, and target shooting. The report comes out every five years and looks at costs associated with equipment, travel, licenses, and fees. It includes a survey of 100,000 people. This year, over half of those people reported participating in wildlife watching, while 15% went fishing and 6% hunted. And as we are taping this on Wednesday afternoon, there is finally a new Speaker of the House in Washington. It's Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. And when it comes to climate change and environmental policy, buckle up, gang. Johnson is a full-fledged science denier. In 2017, he told Town Hall, is climate change caused by natural cycles or because we drive SUVs? He then proceeded to answer his own question, quote, I don't believe in the latter. I don't think that's the primary driver. Well, science doesn't care what you think, Mr. Speaker. We have 40 years of peer-reviewed research that says humans are undoubtedly the primary driver of climate change. And when it comes to his voting record, he is nothing if not consistent. Speaker Johnson has a lifetime rating of 2% from the League of Conservation Voters. Today we're talking about a report released a few weeks ago by the team here at CWP. We've got CWP's Director of Campaigns and Special Projects, Lauren Bogard, here, along with Policy and Design Associate, Lily Bach-Brownstein, and Outreach and Campaigns Associate, Sterling Homer, to chat about the process of putting the report together and why it matters. Lauren, let's start with you. What is Conservation Toolbox, and why did you choose that name? Thanks, Kate. So the name actually came to us pretty naturally. I think that it's easy to appreciate when you're doing something, having the right tool for the job versus trying to do all tasks with a blunt instrument. So the name flowed naturally from our focus on looking at the different pathways to conservation. And our intention was to highlight a few specific examples for across a multitude of categories, which includes designations like national parks, as well as mechanisms or planning processes like resource management plans. And We already have our Road to 30 postcards campaign to focus on specific people and places. So our intention here was to look at some of these conservation building blocks and how one type of conservation designation can ultimately lead to another. Awesome. And sticking with you for for another question, um, I remember we, we came up with this idea in a brainstorming session, and I'm pretty sure you're the one who sort of originated it. So tell us a little bit more about the idea for the report and and why CWP decided to do this report. I appreciate the credit, Kate. I think sometimes the best ideas come from your own curiosity. And we encounter different types of conservation tools and processes in the course of our works looking at public lands and energy issues. And so I think we were finding ourselves talking about things like 
areas of critical environmental concern and mineral withdrawals. So the idea was, okay, there are a lot more tools than we even talk about normally um, within and across federal agencies that can have a conservation benefit. But it's important to note here that the tools highlighted in the report don't have an equal level of conservation benefit. It can vary. So some are more stringent and some are more tailored to a specific place. And a lot of them are not very well known, and it can actually be hard to find information about some of these tools on the internet, particularly in one place for those that cross multiple federal agencies. So the idea was, let's look beyond parks, monuments, and wildlife refuges, what we refer to as the big three, and kind of open that toolbox uh, to identify other opportunities to protect lands. Lily, I think that brings up an interesting question of when you're looking at a potential scope as large as this uh, for for any one report, how do you how do you draw the line? How do you decide what to include or what is just too obscure or ends up being either too confusing, too random, for lack of a better word, to include in something like this? Yeah, and we definitely encountered a lot of different types of designations that we were like, we got to draw the line somewhere, what's included, what's not, so it doesn't get too unwieldy for both the reader and for us to write. Um, So we focused solely in this report on federally protected public lands, though the report acknowledges that there's plenty of tools at the state and local and tribal level and private lands that, that do help with conservation, but we kept ourselves limited to the federal level um, and stuck with land conservation only, so not considering ocean conservation in this report. Um, and then within that, we just wanted to show the breadth of what these tools can do, so including both those widely known tools like national parks so we can compare them to things like resource management plans that might not be as well known. Um, and then... You know, as things came up and we discovered a new tool that we had to talk about, is this going in the report? We just decided, is this widely used enough for us to include it? Or do we maybe hold off and decide this one's really obscure? Um, or maybe this we mention this sort of as an aside. So, Sterling, tell us then about how this report ended up getting laid out. What can folks expect to find when they go to westernpriorities.org slash toolbox. Well, as any good report does, we have a, a intro and a conclusion. Um, so if you're looking for the cheap version, just go ahead and read those. But um, the federal land protection tools themselves are laid out across six categories. Um, and these categories uh, start with the big three. And uh, in, in this category includes national parks, national monuments, and national wildlife refuges. Um, and, you know, these are the, the designations that many of us have heard of. Many of us plan trips to these places. Um, and then after that, we get into the, the section into the wild, places like wilderness, wilderness study areas. Um, and, you know, after that, uh, we move to recreation and conservation. Um, we also have a section for multiple use. Uh, we have a section for flora and fauna. Um, and then a, a section on more tools, anything that didn't fit within those other five categories. Um, and what's really great about this organization is um, you can jump to wherever you need to go to, to find the information you want. Um, and also within each tool is, is at least two examples of, of landscapes where these tools have been put to use. Um, and this is great for a couple reasons. First, um, we can see where these tools have been successful. 
Um, and also, it gives readers an understanding of areas outside of their closest national park that they might be able to go visit. Um, you know, so so not many people might not many people think of visiting an area of critical environmental concern. Um, but this report sort of brings up some areas where you might be able to go visit and and see um, some really awesome landscapes. Now, Aaron, you came up with those sections. Um, you were brave enough to volunteer to take on that task. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process of trying to organize these tools and wh- how it worked and how it didn't work. You, you know, I really appreciated coming. You know, I, we, we all talked about the concept and the idea for this report together. And then I was one of the ones who took a step back while everyone was researching and writing and then stepping back in when it was time to put it all together, I, it was eye-opening for me as someone who, you know, we, we do this professionally here. We, we talk about, we advocate for, we research public lands every day. But to actually sit there and put all of this in one document and then say, okay, how do, we, how do you make the most sense of this in a way that someone approaching this from the outside isn't immediately overwhelmed? And that's where I, you know, I, I messed around with it a couple different ways. Do we just look at it by agency, which is maybe the most obvious way, but then you start realizing, well, no, there are a lot of designations like national monuments, for example, or wilderness areas that apply across agencies. So that doesn't really make sense. Uh, do you look by, organize it by level of protection? And uh, maybe that's one way to do it, but some of these designations can be uh incredibly protective or less so depending on how they're implemented. So that started to make less sense. So what we eventually settled on was kind of an organization by stuff you might know about and stuff you might not. Starting with those, the big three national parks, national monuments, national wildlife refuges, and then going from down from there into some of the more obscure tools uh, and organizing those in ways that I think made sense, whether they're primarily for designating uh, or protecting overall ecosystems like wilderness or for carefully protecting individual plants and animals like, like wildlife corridors or, or ESA designations, the Endangered Species Act. I don't know if we got it right. This is the kind of thing I'd love to get uh, feedback on. But I'm, I'm overall pretty happy with how this ended up, and the appreciation I think that I took away in that process of, of looking at all of these tools holistically. Yeah, I'm going to jump in there really quick because I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, and these thoughts sort of came up as we were putting the report together. Um, there are a lot of tools that are that are really similar, but a little bit different. They're kind of redundant um, and they're really hard to organize. And I think it's a result of the fact that these were all created, almost all created by Congress responding to kind of specific needs. Um, So it's kind of a messy history of how these tools all came to exist. And I think that's reflected in the report in the sense that they don't all fit into specific categories very well. But I think that maybe one of the big values of this report is that we actually did try to um, put some order to um, these tools and sort of create, you know, uh, um, uh, create a tool that organizes conservation tools. But um, I'm going to return to questions here and um, ask Lily, 
Which sections of the report did you write and what did you learn from working on them? So I wrote National Recreation Areas, National Wild and Scenic Rivers, National Trails, and the Critical Habitat slash Endangered Species Act section. Um, number one, the first thing I learned was it was a lot harder to track down some of this information than I anticipated, especially for these ones that are managed by multiple agencies. It, each agency will have like a couple pieces, but like not everything. And um, yeah, so definitely more complex than I thought it was going to be. Um, and then... The other thing I found interesting, specifically with these sections I worked on, is the way they sort of interact and overlap and how you can have a tool that doesn't maybe create the strongest protections for the landscape, but might contribute to a wider landscape of conservation. Like if you have a national wild and scenic river running through a national forest, that will inform how that forest needs to be managed. And that is a broader landscape of conservation. So let's go around the horn here and just have everyone who worked on the report do answer the similar question. So Sterling, you next. Sure. Well, I uh, I covered the areas National Wildlife Refuges. Uh, I did wilderness, wilderness study areas, and wildlife corridors. Um, and what I learned from working on these is that even within each designation, the rules aren't always the same. Um, and what I mean by that is one national wildlife refuge might be managed specifically to maintain the habitat of a specific species, um, while another might be managed for multiple purposes to, to um, preserve plants within the, the wildlife refuge as well. Um, a good example of the latter would be in, in Georgia, the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge not only protects animals, but also hundreds of plant species. So what I learned was not only do we have a plethora of tools that can be used to conserve America's lands, waters, and wildlife, but most of these tools function almost as multi-tools um, with the ability to conserve even the most unique landscapes. Awesome. Lauren, let's go to you next. So I researched and wrote about mineral withdrawals, national parks and preserves, national monuments, national conservation areas, forest management plans, in roadless areas. And in addition to the content-specific learning about these different conservation tools, I just had some learning for myself about research. It's not my favorite thing to do. I don't think it's my greatest strength, but I relied on the team uh, to help me figure out how to uh, do the, each of these categories justice. And I'll just note here, one thing that you did, Kate, that was really helpful to all of us is identify questions that we needed to respond to for each of these categories. So folks, take a look at the report. Each tool will include a description of what the tool is, how it's established, how protective it is, as in, is it permanent? Is it temporary? And then also how it interacts with other types of protection and some examples. So it was helpful to have that um, consistency across categories. Kate, same question to you. What did you work on and what surprised you? Sure. So I'm going to be honest, I was trying to, I was going through the report this morning, trying to figure out which sections I worked on. And I've kind of forgot because I, because we kind of all ended up working on all of them ultimately. But the ones I know I worked on and wrote originally are resource management plans, um, areas of critical environmental concern and military conservation lands. And then the land and water conservation fund section I also authored. Um, and I learned 
a lot. Um, doing the resource management plan section and the areas of critical environmental concern section made a lot of sense because the two are very connected. Um, I'm going to be honest. I, ha I I've you know, been working and reporting and writing about the BLM for years now. And I really still didn't understand exactly how research resource management plans are made and what they can do. They're a lot more powerful than I realized. Um, and similarly with ACECs, areas of critical environmental concern, I didn't exactly know what they were or how they were established. Um, so it was really cool to sort of have a deeper understanding of how BLM lands are managed. Um, even lands that aren't don't have a specific conservation status still can have a lot of protective measures placed on them. Um, military conservation lands was a pretty new category for me. And um, there's a really cool program called the Sentinel Landscapes Program that was actually just created in 2013. So it's pretty new, but there are already 12 designated Sentinel landscapes across the country. And those um, can actually provide some pretty strong conservation benefits. Um, and then finally, the Land and Water Conservation Fund. This is something that I had reported on a bit, but um, learned a lot about through this um, report. And specifically, it was interesting to learn the 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 about the breadth of projects that are funded by LWCF dollars, including um, the Valle de Oro National Wildlife Refuge. Um, the land to to create that refuge near Albuquerque was actually purchased with LWCF funding. Um, and we had an episode on that um, on that wildlife refuge a, a long way back, which you can go find if you're interested in learning more. Lily, right at the top of the report, there's a chart uh, that shows both the permanency and the relative level of protection for each tool that's in the report. Can you describe this to us and some of those challenges of putting that together, given this is a, an inherently subjective exercise of trying to put conservation tools uh, almost, if not against one another, at least compared to each other in that uh, fairly reductive way? Yeah, and the fun of describing a visual object in an audio, but I'm going to do my best. Um, so it's sort of a cool visualization we made. It's basically a scatter plot with each tool on the scatter plot. Um, and on the x-axis, it's durability, um, meaning how permanent that is or how difficult it would be to undo it. And then on the y-axis, it's protectiveness meaning how much that tool prioritizes conservation over other uses of the land. Um, and so many of the tools on there do have like a range based on how they could be implemented or if there are different categories within that tool. Um, and just to give you a couple examples, in the top right corner, so the most durable and the most protective is wilderness. Um, and then a like less protective but very durable would be national trails, which could only be undone by an act of Congress, but they don't provide all that much conservation benefit. And then the least protective and least durable would be wildlife corridors, which aren't really an official designation at all. Um, and then upper left would be critical habitat, which is very protective, but it is by its nature temporary status. Um, so basically, we all got together, we went through each tool one by one, had a really good discussion about each one, and we ranked it on a numeric scale, um, and then sort of went back through and we're like, okay, well, if this one's an eight, then actually I think this one's less, this one is a seven. Um, 
and ended up with this sort of quantitative representation of very subjective qualitative information. And I was able to put that on this chart and mess around a lot with the colors in order to get it to really readable format. So Sterling, how do you hope that people will use this report? I think more than anything, I hope people will use this as a resource. Um, If you're, let's say you're visiting a wilderness area and you want to know what types of activities are allowed, um, this is something you might be able to look at and and, um, get answers uh, with. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been driving with friends on our way to a campsite and somewhere in the mountains, one of them asks, so like, if we can't find a campsite, can we pull over on the side of the road and just camp on this BLM land that we know is BLM land? Um, so like, what does that mean for us if this is BLM land? And and this report might be able to tell you, you know, some BLM lands allow camping in designated areas. Some are just public land entirely where you can pull off and camp. Um, and, you know, no matter who you are, I believe this report has something for you, whether you're a policymaker or or a recreationist, um, this report is is broad enough to um, appeal to wide audiences. And I'll just jump in there. I think this is a useful uh, tool for communities when you're talking about the areas that surround you, the, the especially the national public lands. What does all of this mean, for example, during the resource management planning process, as we're seeing play out now in Wyoming in particular, where we're seeing lots of misinformation and disinformation coming out during the planning process. I think having a guide that spells out, here's what all of these things mean, and here's why some areas are going to be more protected and some areas less so, and here's what an ACEC means during that planning process. I hope that becomes a useful tool uh, for folks as they engage on their their public lands. And Kate, I think your perspective is probably useful here. We both came into environmental advocacy from the journalism world. Is this the kind of thing you you hope journalists will turn to uh, if they're not necessarily someone who's on the public lands beat all the time, but get thrown into a public land story one day? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I As I was putting this report together, I thought on multiple occasions, wow, I wish I had had this when I... Um, showed up in southern Utah to report for the NPR station here in Utah. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, just reporting on public lands, there it, there's so much that you need to know. And um, this report has a lot of that information in it, especially about how these places are established, processes. Processes are really important to understand as a reporter because you're trying to explain processes to everyone else. So you kind of have to understand them yourself first. Um, So I think anyone who's reporting on public lands or public land adjacent issues or conservation issues um, should definitely go take a look at this because it's an incredible resource just for understanding these things. Lauren, I want to give you the last word here since you got to, to write the introduction and the conclusion. You wrote that conservation is a journey, not a destination. I, as much as that, I don't. I don't think it sounds trite. I think that is the point here. So, at at the risk of mixing metaphors, that all of these tools can be used on a journey. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I'll just note that it's surprisingly easy to mix metaphors. It was for us working <laughs> on this, um, but I, I'll say it this way: when you think about conservation, it can be helpful to think about it 
as a road um, and maybe not necessarily to get lost in the details of a particular type of designation um, and certainly not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. In some of our uh, research and learning about locally led and indigenous led protection campaigns, uh, one of the things you appreciate is what is on the ground. What is it that people love, that they care about, that they feel a connection to? And perhaps what Toolbox does is shows how you can look at what you're trying to to protect for future generations or uh, provide access to and let that guide the type of tool. Fortunately, I think sometimes different types of conservation might get politicized and, and be referred to in, an, in a way that that uh, what's actually there and why people care about it gets lost a little bit. So our our hope here is that it's uh, it's important to, to start somewhere and that there are many examples of when a relatively modest type of protection may lead to further uh, more stringent protections down the road. The, the obvious example is when a national monument can later be designated by Congress as a national park. And then finally, the idea that conservation is not a one-size-fits-all approach to, again, really look at what the local community and folks who care about a place would like to see happen there and tailor your tailor the approach in terms of what works best for that community and for that place. Uh, Kate, any uh, final thoughts here? Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to plug is that there were a lot of great resources that we used to put this together, and we actually did include include links to those in our report. So um, if you want to learn more about any of the tools that we have in here, there are links to do that Um, because we couldn't include everything in this report. But and we also wanted to acknowledge that there's a lot of a lot of good resources out there already. That's a, a great flag. And I think a great place to to leave this. Lauren Sterling, Lily, uh, I know it's not always easy to toot your own horn and come in talking about the work you do. Uh, but this is, I think, a, a wonderful resource that you all have uh, a really great reason to be proud of. So thank you all for taking the time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Speaking of conservation tools, the Interior Department just put one to work to protect the endangered Wyoming toad. This month, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced the creation of a new conservation area to protect the toad's habitat. The designation was made possible through a sale from a private landowner to a conservation nonprofit and ultimately to the federal government, which purchased more than 1,000 acres through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. The new designation is the 13th conservation area managed by Fish and Wildlife, which for most of its history only managed wildlife refuges on federal lands. High Country News reports that plans are underway for another two conservation areas in Montana and Florida. That, that Florida one I was reading about, that's going to be a big one covering 12 counties across the Everglades. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting, even though we don't, of course, talk about Florida much on this podcast. Well, that is it for today. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always reach us, podcast at westernpriorities.org. Go give us a follow on Threads and TikTok if you're on those platforms. We are, uh, like so many others, 
moving away from the website formerly known as Twitter. Threads seems to be as good a contender as any for uh, what might take its place. We are just western.priorities over there. Thanks to Aaron for figuring out how to turn our conference room into a recording studio on the fly for this episode. (laughs) And thank you for listening to The Landscape.